Exodus chapter 9. We've, we've started Exodus chapter 9 last week with the, the sixth sign, right? Or the sixth, the sixth plague that came upon the livestock of, of Egypt, the flocks of the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and, and all their flocks. They were, they were killed off as a sign of judgment on, on Egypt. And over and over again now, what we've been seeing, right, from plague to plague to plague is how the Lord is passing his judgment upon Egypt. Um, and to be just a little reductionistic a little bit, he, because of his disobedience, right? His refusal to, um, um, to listen to the Lord, to be obedient to the Lord. But we know, as we've been seeing each and every week, that God has his, has his sovereign purposes behind every bit of this and behind every single detail. From, from the, the, the kind of plague to each exact plague, how it would be affected, who it would affect, to even the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. It started with Aaron's staff, right, being thrown onto the ground and becoming a serpent and then eating the serpents of the, of the, the magicians of, of Pharaoh. And then the Lord turns the whole Nile River into, into blood, right? The lifeblood of Egypt is turned into blood, totally wrecking their, their water source and the, a major piece of their religion, right, to trust the God of the Nile, that, that this God of the Nile would, would give them flourishing and growth in their and their crops. And then the Lord sent swarms of frogs. Do you remember that? How they were croaking everywhere. And also an attack against another one of their gods. A, a god that would give them life and safety. And then when the Lord took them all away. Remember all the frogs. They, they had to pile them all up. And then, then Egypt became the stench. No longer was Israel a stench before the Egyptians. But now Egypt became a stench before the whole world. And then the gnats came. That came from the dust when Aaron took his staff and he hit the ground and dust came up and those turned into gnats. And we don't have to go into that. We know how terrible they are. And then swarms of flies gathered with the gnats in a sense and they just obliterated all hope of having any kind of peace and comfort. And this is where we see the magicians. They, they come to Pharaoh and, and they're like, we have no answer to this. This is the finger of God. And here is where Moses begins to tell us about how God made a distinction in protecting providentially his people from suffering under his hand as he is now judging Egypt. He is sparing Israel, protecting them. And after the Lord took away the flies, we see Pharaoh lies again. And then the Lord sent this plague of death on the livestock, which would decimate the wealth and power of Egypt. And all of these, right? All of, and all of these and the ones that come are all showing us, as we talked about last week, they're all showing us God's salvation through judgment, which again, as we talked about last week, it foreshadows the work of Christ. Judgment is not poured out on Egypt, but is poured upon him. And then we are redeemed. In a sense, then Egypt is redeemed. And so that we could be saved. And we also have seen the clear manifestation, one after another, the authority of the Lord our God. 
The Lord told his people that that they shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. Also, the same kind of language he used to tell Egypt that they will know that I am the Lord God. And over and over and over again, he says this. And this this repetition is to, to tell us that this is a sign that God is going to be known. His name is, is going to be known, that he is the Lord, that he is the I am who I am, that he is Yahweh. And the way that Egypt is going to come to know him will be by the strength of his arm, and Israel will come to know him by his loving redemption. And I think this is where we can see this, again, the overarching, our most favorite theme in all the Bible, the thing that we love so much, we name our church after it, the sovereignty of God. Over and over, over again. And we're only halfway through, or actually we're just a little bit over halfway through. Just a little halfway through over these, these plagues. And clearly, again, we're seeing over and over again the absolute sovereignty of the Lord God. Now, the things that God is doing, they may be small, mats and flies and, and frogs. These things may be, may be small in a sense, but look what he's using. Very small, minuscule things that cause such devastation upon Egypt. Right? This isn't a, a, a wrestling match between two equals. Yeah, it's a showdown. We talked about that weeks ago, right? It's a showdown between the Lord and, and Pharaoh. But this, as, uh, unfortunately for Pharaoh, what he has come to quickly realize, this isn't equals. This isn't, this isn't equals. God is just flexing just a little bit. He's not even bearing any real weight here. He's just, he's just flexing and hilariously there's frogs and gnats and flies. And they absolutely humble Egypt. Animals that sustain life and strength dropping like flies. And why? Because God is sovereign and he does as he pleases. And we're going to see more of that this morning. A short one. Uh, But brothers and sisters, this is a a painful one. So Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become a fine dust over all the land, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all of Egypt. Verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired and an errant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Now, as we have been doing for the last couple of weeks, let me give you a quick breakdown of this passage. Very simple. Verses 8 and 9, the Lord pronounces a sign, the sign to Aaron and Moses. Verse 10 and 11 is the implementation of, the, of, the, of this very terrible plague. And lastly, verse 12, 
Um, we see how the, the, the Lord's work in Pharaoh in a way that the Lord told us that he would do. So this is a short one. It's not lengthy. We don't get a lot of details. There, there's no turning of Pharaoh pleading with Moses and Aaron to strike some deal and to ask the Lord to remove this plague. But either way, in these short five verses, we, we can read this and, and we can somewhat, in a sense, sympathize in a way knowing that this sign is rough. That this is, this is hard. I mean, you think about it, boils all over your body. Terrible. Horrendous. Right? This, this hedge of protection that we're so, we're so used to, right? We, we just kind of daily assume, it is, and, and them is just failing, right? Like just one right after another, this, the cone of protection that they thought was there is just slipping away, gone. And now it is straight up personal, literally on their bodies that they can see and that they can feel. And it's everybody in the land. It's, it's not just Pharaoh. Now, now I don't think this, this text is telling us that it's hitting the Israelites. In fact, I think we can kind of say that it's not because it's all over the land of Egypt, throughout the land of Egypt, came upon all the Egyptians. So I think the same description that's coming through that Moses says that there's a separation is that it's still continuing and flowing through. But what's, what's so crazy here about this, again, right, and, and the idea that a sixth plague actually has to come, what's so crazy is we've remarked over and over again is just how insane Pharaoh is. I mean, you're talking about just insanity. And one of the things we've, we've remarked when we've used that word is just how insane sin is. And what it leads us to do and where it, it keeps us and the stubborn pride and arrogance and how destructive it is. Systematically, the effects of sin are destroying Egypt. And they're like the stubborn child that is just saying, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to give in. But here it gets personal. Because this isn't something that they're just watching in the field, dead cows just falling over or horses falling over dead or flies and gnats around them. If they thought that things couldn't get worse, it now has gotten very worse because this is a direct attack upon them personally to take away their, their health and then to give them some chronic external disease that would literally drive them crazy, not by swarming around their faces, but drive them crazy in pain. <coughs> In pain. And then and, and this, this makes this sign, this plague, just on a, on a whole nother level because this is something that they can feel. And not just mentally or emotionally, but they feel through every nerve in their body. Proverbs 27, 22 says, Crush a fool in a mortar. And a pedestal, along with, along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. And this means, say with me, I'm, I'm trying to make a point that, that, that no matter how often a fool is crushed by the consequences of their foolishness, somehow his folly always manages to survive. 
And in his folly, they never learn their lesson. And when you read and dig into Exodus like we have, Pharaoh is like the epitome of Proverbs 27, 22. He is the epitome, right? Externally, like, like man, in the world, externally, he's a champ. He's the man. There's no one with more authority, man. He's got the power. He's got the wealth. He's got the adoration and the worship. He has everything. But here, through each and every plague, systematically, he is exposed, according to God's word, as a complete and utter fool. As a fool. And he's being crushed time and time again with the mortar and pedestal of God's strong arm. And yet he changes not. He remains in his folly again and again. And that's what I want us to to somewhat see this morning from this text. Is that this is not just Pharaoh alone, right? This isn't just some isolated man in history, but this is the natural man that rejects all what's true and yet still in their folly, in the insanity of their sin, they are still facing the consequences of their folly. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is despite the objective evidence of every sign that is put on display, Pharaoh still rejects. And that reveals to us that even though he is just this one man, this is what we see in the heart of all men. Without the regenerating work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that man suppresses the truth. Man suppresses the truth. And now with with this plague, like the gnats, it kind of comes unannounced to Pharaoh and gives no warning to him to repent or to let his people go that that they might serve me, right? The, the Lord just sends Moses and they throw the soot in the air and it happens. But the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron and he tells them exactly what to do, right? And this is, it's really a pretty amazing description, right? What to do. Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw it in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust all over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking on the sores of man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Now first, look what it means Uh, Look at the means and the imagery of that sign. Get handfuls of soot from the kiln. That's some pretty specific instructions, right? Just don't beat a random patch of of dirt on the ground. Grab grab some soot from the kiln. And what were the kilns used for? Kilns are used to harden the clay, to make pots, to make pitchers, to make plates, to make vases, and you guessed it, to make bricks. So quite possibly, this is the very soot that came from the kilns that the the Israelites were using to make bricks to build for Pharaoh. And now the object by which Pharaoh was using to oppress God's people, God is using now to oppress and judge Egypt. I think this is also an illustration not only of judgment, but an illustration of how how swift throughout Egypt this disease, in a sense, is going to spread throughout Egypt. And, and that the, the impossibility of any of them to be able to stop it. You know, any attempt to run from this plague is, is futile. We've used that word a lot, haven't we? Futile. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever had to clean out a fire pit or a fireplace or a charcoal grill or, or had to deal with any kind of, of, of uh, uh, any kind of amount of, of ash before, but if you have, then you know how hard it is to clean it all up and still not make some kind of mess. It's just kind of inevitable that it's going to get somewhere and make a mess. I, I, when I was a kid, I had to uh, clean out our fire, fireplace and I made the mistake knowing, right? Knowing that, man, cleaning out always just makes a mess. And I was trying to reduce how many times I'd have to sweep the hearth and stuff like that uh, with that little broom. And, and so I was like, I got this great idea. My dad's got this awesome new shop vac. And I wheeled that sucker in there. I plugged it in and I said, let's have it. I turned it on. And before I knew it, buddy, that did not work right. The house was in a plume of ash. And I don't know why. I guess the filter wasn't on right or something, or I'm just an idiot, and you're not really supposed to do that. Haven't tried it again since. Um, but that's the image, in a sense, of what we got here. Where, in, in, in some sense, you can pick up the ash, right, in your hand, or you can scoop it up with a shovel, and you can quantify it, right, in some sense. You can see it. But when you take that stuff and you throw it in the air, or you throw it through a vacuum, guess what you can only see? just a plume of smoke that you can't really quantify, right? You can't really grab it and collect it back. And that's the image that we have here. The image is it's, it's going to go everywhere and there's nothing you can do about it. It's out. Once it's out, it's out. And needless to say, the end of the story of me cleaning the fireplace as I had the dust like the whole house. It's coming and you're not going to see it and it's going to spread faster than you can imagine this disease will ever do. You know, today we have epidemiologists who, who track the pattern of diseases and health of people in order to protect public health and bring about preventative health care and so many other things. And it's an important area of study in, our, in modern medicine. I mean, without a doubt, as Christians, we should be thankful for them. But here in, Egypt, or here in Exodus 9 in Egypt, the Lord is saying, there is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can do. And the Egyptians were known, by the way, for their medicine. As rudimentary as it could be way back then, they kind of prided themselves as being a people that practiced medicine within their religion. But in the last part of verse 8, the Lord tells Moses to throw that soot in the air where? In the sight of Pharaoh. And, and this is important because it, it, this may not seem like a big deal because almost every single one of these, they're definitely going to Pharaoh. In some sense, it's always going to be done in his sight in one way or another. But here again, even though Pharaoh was not being warned, God wanted Pharaoh to see this done in his sight. To do this right in front of him so that he would know without a doubt that this is a miracle. That again, that this is straight from the finger of Yahweh. This plague is about to come upon you isn't just some random occurrence or some consequence of some other pestilence or some other phenomenon in, in Egypt. But this is the judgment of the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac, Yahweh. And it's coming upon all your people and all your beasts. In the sight. Make no mistake. It is done in their sight. In our culture today, in our age, we live in a very scientific age. Everything 
is to be explained one way or another scientifically or should be able to be explained scientifically. And, and as I already said, as Christians, these, these things we should be thankful for in some ways, right? We should be thankful for modern science. And I know that's a, that's a loaded statement, especially today. But however, if, if you had a heart attack and you're going to be thankful for the modern science and modern medicine that will come behind, hopefully, to be able to save your life, such as a very simple device of an AED, which, by the way, we should probably have one of those. You'll be thankful for the, the medical staff and the doctors that will treat you. How about if you have to go under anesthesia or pain medicine after surgery? Of course, these are things we should be, we are thankful for as Christians. And we're thankful for them because we know from the Lord, like he is sovereign, right? And he has decreed and he has given order to all of creation. And these things that we see scientifically, we say, God did that. I don't know how, God did it. However you want to deduce it and bring it back down to where you think the origin is, blah, blah, blah. Nope, God did it. God did it. He's sovereign and over all of our discoveries and breakthroughs and technology and all of these things that are leveraged to save and preserve life. But our modern world has this complex like Pharaoh. They have rejected all notions of a sovereign creator and has replaced him with a secular human humanistic mindset as science or man is god and no matter how much man is limited in their scope and understanding or how much the science quote unquote changes because of new knowledge or technology science seems to be the thing that's always right and can never be wrong and the reason why is because science has become the end itself. And again, we're thankful for science. But we put it under the umbrella of theology. Of what's theological and what's biblical. And that's what guides us. You know, in academia, they used to have, in a sense, the, the rating of the different uh, disciplines and the first of all of those disciplines was theology. And in all of the schools, right? And all the universities, it was theology. And it's one of the reasons why theology students, when they graduate, they have the red tassel. It's the strongest of all the colors. Red. And the blood of Christ. But what has happened now in universities? This has been cast aside as being just another maybe discipline that can be added or put underneath for your own enjoyment or whatnot, but not to be the very factor that explains and understands everything else. And this is one of the reasons why we see today, in the name of science, all kinds of wickedness. Science is used, right, used to be evidence of the existence of a loving creator. And now it's become the weapon that is supposed to prove that there is not a God. And to prove that man is God. And brothers and sisters, again, this isn't new. This isn't something new that all of a sudden this is a new problem. Yeah, we have different issues within that. 
in the different ways that it's manifesting itself, but this isn't something new because, because we see this in Pharaoh, and then Paul explains it for us correctly in Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God, I know Patrick's already been there in Romans 1, he's already there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? They suppress the truth. They suppress the truth, right? So this is an example here from Exodus 9, I think of an absolute suppressing of the truth. Do this in front of them. I mean, the objective evidence is so clear that this is the Lord God doing this. And yet it's no, it's not. Suppressing the truth. And to take something that is obvious and as, and with, as the mysterious and the grandeur of even creation itself, the things that we discover and the more and more we understand, we realize how much more we don't understand. We'll never get to the depths of science. And what's clear, as we know, is that God has made very clear before Pharaoh, as he is making himself and has made himself very clear, according to Romans 1, to every man. But in our natural state, like Pharaoh, in our arrogance, we suppress the truth. And Paul goes on. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them all. Because God has shown it to them. Right? I mean, it's, it's been shown. Like in the sight, the soot being thrown in front of the whole world. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his omnipotence and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Listen to this. So they are without excuse. Who in their right mind can look at Pharaoh and say he is, he's without excuse? And the same thing goes for every man or woman in this world. We are without excuse because God has made himself clearly known. And so, no, it's no wonder then, right, that, that here then the, the Egyptians, the, Egyptians are, we, the suppressing of the truth, that the Egyptians then, right, they have all of this false worship and idolatry. And, and no wonder then that, that still there's false worship and false idolatry today. All idolatry is false. Because we suppress what is clearly perceived. And as Paul says, in Romans 1, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Worship science. Worship my knowledge. Worship my strength. Worship my power. Worship my identity and my emotions. That's king. That's God. Exchanging truth about God for a lie. However, let me just turn this around and speak to the church. Brothers and sisters, praise God. Praise God for his saving grace. That he has overcome in us and in you the suppression of truth. 
and idolatry and the sinful worship of self. And he has, he has put before you and he has put before me in our sight. Like he has thrown before us in our sight the glories and grandeur of Jesus Christ. And then by his grace, he opened our hearts and our eyes to see and gave us faith to believe and trust in Christ that he is the only one that can save us. And we're no longer in sign seven suppressing the truth. And yet we also know that this gives us understanding of what's happening around us. It gives understanding, I think, to every Christian throughout time is is for us to understand what's happening around us. But even more is the power of the gospel to save even those who suppress the truth. And now in verses 10 and 11, the, the Lord makes good on this promise. And once again, uh, we see Moses, Aaron, obediently. Right? Can you imagine walking up to Pharaoh, going into his house, picking his stuff out of his fireplace and just throwing it in the air and walking out? Again, like the drop the mic kind of moment. Dust in the air. Immediately the boils started breaking out and soars over every man and beast. And what a crazy sight that must have been. Again, we see the, God, the consistency of God. He says it, and he does it, and it happens. And we know that's not, that's not the big news here. The big news here is the, the boils and the, and the sores on everyone. We don't know what kind of disease this was. and Frankly, frankly we really don't really need to know. You know, maybe a leprosy, smallpox, scabs, skin anthrax. Google those later after lunch. And in light of that, I debated whether if I should sit here and try to give you a detailed explanation of such things. And you're very, very blessed because I'd said, no, I'm not going to do that. Because not only would that be gross, but I think we all can agree already together without me describing it how horrible of a situation this is. One of which, thankfully, I think most of us really have no concept of what it means for a whole people group a whole people group to be suffering and covered with sores and balls. The pain and the agony must have been unbearable and even life-threatening. But again, the point is not for us to be grossed out, but the point is for us to understand the severity of God. The severity of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord warns and threatens, in a sense, he threatens Israel. And he says, there will be curses for your disobedience to the law. And this is one of them. Verse 27 of Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with the tumors and scabs that itch of which you cannot be healed. Right, you, you think when they heard that and when and Moses, when he's preaching the word of God to them, you think when they heard that, they understood and maybe got a little shiver of Man, that was bad. We were laughing at the frogs and the gnats and maybe a few cows dying, but we weren't laughing at that. This is the severity of God. 
And this gets their attention as it gets our attention. And that is, do not be like Egypt, Israel, or you will suffer the consequences of Egypt. And to make matters worse, not only is this attack on them physically, but as we said earlier, this is an attack on their religion. Again, as, as trying to practice medicine and trying to be a people who are religious and they tie those things uh, together. They had these healing gods and stuff like that. And the same thing, right? There was nothing they can do to heal them. But here in verse 11, as all of these, all of the people, the pharaohs and all the Egyptians, they're all humbled by the boils. We see in verse 11, the magicians come back. And so, so again, here comes the clowns, right? The guys we kind of designated as the clowns. And their little clown show coming out of their little clown car. But in verse 11, listen to what it says. It says that they are in so much pain and probably having boils in places that they would rather not have them. That they were unable to stand. You ever been in so much pain that you couldn't even stand? That you're doubled over? And so think of the great reversal that's happening here. Verse 10. Moses and Aaron are standing. They stood before Pharaoh. And almost now as a, as a bow of surrender, these magicians have nothing left. Oh, the irony. And those that came to oppose Moses and Aaron, the Lord, they are completely and painfully humbled. And I think that there's another lesson from us for us here. It's not only do we see in, in, in Pharaoh and such the suppressing of the truth, but what we see here is the outcome of those that oppose the Lord. The outcome of those who oppose the Lord in Exodus. This is the last time the clowns are going to show up on the scene. But they're going to come back up in the New Testament. Did you know that? In in the New Testament, Paul refers to them in 2 Timothy. And somehow he uses their names. And he uses them as an example of those that do what? That oppose the Lord. Those that oppose the truth. Those that oppose the preaching of the gospel. Those that oppose the, the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul starts out by saying... Starts off by saying that, understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, right? So you guys kind of understand, you know where I'm going here, right? You know where Paul's going here. And he makes that list of all these, all these sins that will, that will now become open and accepted and tolerated and celebrated, like, like pride and arrogance and lovers of money and disobedience to parents and abusive and heartless and without control, self-control. All things we don't have to deal with today, right? And on and on he goes, and you get the idea. There's this lengthy list all the way to verse 6 where he says, For among them, these are those of the the opposition of the gospel, right? For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Sin. So what is oppressors? What is their goal? is to oppress you with sin by making you think that sin is good. It tastes good. It's what you want. But in the end, what is it doing? It's leading you into slavery, into oppression. 
capturing weak women, creeping in their households, burdening you. Verse 7, always learning and yet never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Oppressors of truth, aren't they? Here it is. Here's the example. Back to the, the clowns of Exodus 9. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, the magicians, these men, the oppressors we've just been talking about, also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. Did you hear that? But they will not get very far. For their folly, Proverbs 27, 22, will be plain to us all, as was of those two men. That's why I call them clowns, because of their folly. Right? Doesn't, doesn't Exodus 11 to us now, right? Those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, doesn't Exodus 9, 11 make really, really plain, as Paul said it would be, it makes really, really plain to us that these magicians are fools. And why are they fools? Because they opposed the truth. They opposed the truth. And they can't, they can't even stand now. They can't even physically stand up. But even more importantly, brothers and sisters, do we see then the outcome of those that oppose the truth? As the, Paul, as the Apostle Paul, the word of God tells us, they will not get far. And though, it, though in this world, man, it seems like, man, they're getting light years ahead, doesn't it? It seems like they're, they're getting really far ahead. But God's word says they will not. Listen to Revelation 16. And let this sink in for a moment for those who oppose the truth. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the, seventh, telling the seven angels, go and pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Verse two, so the first angel went and poured out the bowl on the earth. And harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped the image. The plague today from Exodus 9 is a sign for us today that those who oppose and oppress God's truth and God's people, they will face judgment. And they will not get far. And this judgment, as we've seen from Revelation 16, is not, it's not good. This is horrific. Because Revelation 16, 1 and 2, that's just the first angel. Remember, he said there's seven of them. And finally, we get to verse 12. And we see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart throughout, which is been pointing to us the consequences, points to us the consequences of those who are rejecting the truth. So suppressing the truth, opposing the truth, rejecting the truth. And in verse 12, however, however, is there's something a little bit different for us here, something that we have not exactly read yet, because for the first time, it actually says to us that it was the Lord who had hardened Pharaoh's heart. Before it's been Pharaoh's heart was hardened or Pharaoh's uh, hardened his own heart or something like that. And so does this mean that God is just then responding to Pharaoh's 
reactions? And the answer to that question is no, because we know from the very beginning that God told Moses that I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So verse 12 is telling us again, as we've said every single week, of the sovereignty of God over the hearts of men. The Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart is a measure of God's judgment in which he gives Pharaoh exactly what he wants from the very beginning. God is not changing or manipulating Pharaoh's desires to do something that he does not want to do. But on the contrary, God chooses to harden Pharaoh's heart, giving him exactly what he wants, and then in the process, judges him for it. When people reject the truth and they embrace lies and sin, they embrace wickedness and debauchery, the Lord grants to them to go into their own way and what they want and what feels good to them, but to their own destruction. And the practical outcome of this is what we read in verse 12. And listen to this. The practical outcome is this. They do not listen. How? When we have something so good. Man, I'm trying to, I'm trying to give you life. They do not listen. And that is the judgment of God. So going back to Romans 1 again, verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We read this already. The truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, verse 26 God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with a passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now we all know what that's speaking of. That is a a picture of what we see today. And what, I mean, the world's always been dealing with this, right? These issues. But now the overwhelming acceptance and tolerance, propagating, uh, indoctrinating. There is a good reason why it's called Pride Month. And in themselves, they will receive the due penalty of error. For since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, listen, God gave them up to a debased mind what ought not to be done. And what does that mean? That means rejecting truth not only hardens our hearts against the Lord, but judiciously, the Lord will harden our hearts and he will give us over to the very desires that we want. And, and brothers and sisters, this is, 
This is outside of the eternal damnation in hell. This is the worst judgment that you can face. The worst judgment of when when God just lets the leash go in a sense of your life and lets you do whatever you want. That should terrify us. That should terrify humanity. And we wonder, I mean, we're just wondering. The consequences are just everywhere now. Statistically, I mean, things are just horrific. And the, and the answer is to continue giving more. I got to get back to my notes. The worst judgment we can face here in this life is that God would give us over to the desires of our flesh. And no wonder, it just seems like Pharaoh is insane. Because that's exactly what's happening. So there are two great applications to this passage we've been hinting at them throughout. And the first is this, is that to all unbelievers who may be hearing this, or to all unbelievers that you may know or that we know together, Oh, how we plead with you to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ alone. The only way out of the cycle of the suppressing of truth, the oppressing truth and rejecting of truth is an absolute and complete surrender to the Lord. And the warning is is clear. And the just judgment of God will be like, as we saw from Revelation 16, will be like the boils, but will be so much worse. So repent. And the second application is to my fellow Christians, to my brothers and sisters here. It's to delight yourself even more in the grace of God for sending his son, Jesus Christ who was put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This showed God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, Romans 3.25. Sometimes it is good for us to look at the bad, to consider together what we have been delivered from. Solely by the grace of God. That helps us understand how good of a treasure we have been given in Christ. And this sacrifice and grace is demonstrated to us. Again, as as we're about to take the Lord's Supper today, this this grace is, is demonstrated to us in taking of the Lord's Supper together. So we can reflect upon that grace that has delivered us and redeemed us from that judgment that we so rightly deserve, but yet by his grace, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, endured it on our behalf. 1 John 4. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. So rejoice and sing and delight in Jesus. Worship the Lord. Love one another. Forgive one another. And pray. And go. And take the gospel as you go. 
And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.